Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 34, Japan and Okinawa, part 2. Before we start this week, I'd just like to begin the episode with a warning. This week we'll be discussing rather graphically and in some detail the events of the Battle of Okinawa. I debated for some time how I wanted to handle this, and in the end, I've decided to be entirely honest about the things I've found doing research in regards to the events of the battle. That means there are some pretty disturbing discussions of some extremely horrific things over the course of this episode. If that's not for you, I urge you to turn this episode off immediately. I don't really enjoy discussing these types of things, but I feel it's important not to try and sugarcoat the past or to pretend that these kind of things didn't happen or to ignore them. They did, they're very important, and their reverberations continue to this day. So, with that in mind, let's continue on to the episode. Last time we talked about the slow process by which Okinawa was first forcibly drawn into the Japanese orbit during the Edo period, and then absorbed into Japan proper during the Meiji period. The Okinawan kingdom, ruled by descendants of Shohashi, was dissolved in 1879, and the final king of Okinawa, Shotai, was invited to Tokyo and made a marquee, or shohaku in Japanese, of the new Japanese aristocracy. After its forcible integration into Japan, Okinawa was governed in a manner identical to the other Japanese prefectures. A centrally appointed governor ran the province and reported back to Tokyo. The Japanese police force was and is to this day organized on the national and not local level, so locally appointed officers did not exist. Instead, officers were trained on the mainland and then dispatched to Okinawa. Education was also centralized, and the curriculum was set by the Tokyo-based Ministry of Education. None of this left much room for native Okinawan traditions. Indeed, a campaign of mass Japanization began after the formal annexation of the islands, designed to re-educate Okinawans along Japanese lines. This policy was far from unusual during the time period, indeed it was pretty much par for the course. One of the great historical phenomena of the 19th century was the attempt to standardize national culture. National governments, in an attempt to tamp down on potentially loyalty-dividing regionalism and ethnic particularism, began instituting strict policies forcing the adoption of one mass culture, usually the culture of the capital city. Regional dialects were discouraged in favor of the official language, usually the dialect of the language spoken in the capital. For example, standard Japanese is Tokyo dialect, standard Italian is the Roman dialect, standard Chinese is Beijing Mandarin, and standard French is Parisian, and so on. Regional power structures, such as, for example, the Okinawan monarchy, were broken down and replaced by standardized structures of government. Standardization of culture was also imposed from above. Local festivals were discouraged in favor of national holidays and national practices. The singing of a national anthem, for example, or in the case of Japanese schools, the reading of the imperial rescript on education. Put simply, a lot of countries during the 19th century spent a great deal of energy trying to either convince or force their citizens to think of themselves as citizens, or subjects as the case may be, of a nation first, and to think of their local ties second, if at all. 
The great historian Eugène Weber described the goal of France during the 19th century as, quote, turning peasants into Frenchmen. In the same vein, the goal of the Meiji government was to turn the people of Satsuma, or Echigo, or Tsugaru, and especially the people of Okinawa, into Japanese. This phenomenon is particularly noticeable in countries formed out of territories that, until the 1800s, either had only loose ties among the various areas making up the country, for example Germany or Japan, or countries where the various constituent regions had actually been independent of each other, such as Italy. In order to assure themselves of the loyalty of the people in these far-flung regions, who had never had much to do with each other beforehand, these countries put everything they could into, in a sense, flattening out regional differences and getting everyone on the same page. This is particularly true in the case of Japan. Prior to the Meiji period, if you weren't a samurai, odds were pretty good that you'd never gone very far from your village, and thus had few, if any, ties to the area outside of your very close locality. So what did all this mean for Okinawa? Well, aside from the end of the monarchy, it meant suppression of the Okinawan dialect of Japanese, suppression of native Okinawan religious traditions, which are animistic and somewhat similar in broad strokes to mainland Shinto, but differ substantially in a few areas that we don't really have time to get into, and the promotion of state-backed official Shinto. It also meant the co-opting or suppression of local festivals and activities. The exact same practices were put in place after the conquest of Korea as well as Japan's other colonial possessions. The one exception was the sections of China conquered in the 1930s. Owing both to the fact that the wars Japan was fighting at the time took priority over re-education, and the nominal independence of what were in fact Japanese-backed puppet regimes. In many ways, Okinawa was essentially a trying ground for what would later become the pattern of Japanese imperialism and colonialism. Local customs did not disappear, mind you. In Okinawa, as in everywhere else, Regional peculiarities gave ground, but did not disappear. In private, Okinawan was still spoken, and away from the watchful eyes of government officials, the Okinawan religion was still practiced. All in all, Japanese overlordship was a heavy but not unbearable burden for Okinawa, but the worst was yet to come. During the Pacific War, Okinawa was a vital offshore base for Japan, and used as a point of departure for most Japanese naval operations. As the tide of war began to turn against Japan, American planners began considering the necessity of a potential invasion of the Japanese home islands. In turn, they began considering Okinawa as an ideal jumping-off point for that kind of assault. The Okinawan islands, once taken, could be used as a base from which the final, decisive assault on Japan proper could be launched. The Imperial Japanese Army, for its part, still believed by 1945 that if they could bleed the Americans badly enough, the American will to fight would give out. The U.S. would walk away from demanding unconditional surrender, and instead be willing to negotiate on terms more favorable to Japan. Imperial Army planners knew Okinawa would likely be on the list for an American invasion in 1945. The same strategic importance that had made it so useful for them would make it equally useful for Americans. As such, they planned for a bloody battle on Okinawa that would force the U.S. to the table. Caught in the middle were the Okinawans themselves. As the Imperial Army began ferrying troops over to Okinawa from Japan, 
Okinawans were not given a chance to leave. Military ferries were reserved for troops and material only. Then, after the American troops landed on April 1st, 1945, the real disaster began. A blow-by-blow account of the tactics of the Battle of Okinawa is beyond our scope here, but the simple version is that the Japanese, knowing that if they met the American landing directly on the beach they would be blasted to pieces by superior American planes and ships, stayed a few miles away from the coast and began attacking the Americans as they advanced inland, where superior American naval and air firepower would be of considerably less use. The battle that resulted was a long slog, as the Americans slowly and at great cost pushed the Japanese back, eventually isolating them at the opposite end of the island and annihilating the remaining Japanese forces. The process took almost three months. Okinawa was declared pacified by the U.S. Army on June 22nd. What did this mean for the Okinawans on the island? Well, they had been told by military propagandists that the American troops, upon landing, would treat the population mercilessly. Women would be raped, property stolen, and the Americans would kill everyone they could find. Understandably terrified, civilian Okinawans retreated behind Japanese lines upon the start of the battle, only to find that the army, which was ostensibly defending them, had little intention of treating them better. Imperial Army units refused to give food to Okinawan civilians, and would in fact execute civilians who they caught taking any food reserved for use by troops, which is to say all the food there was, both stored and still in the wild. One Japanese garrison commander, Akamatsu Yoshitsugu, issued an order forcing all Okinawans in his region of operation to hand over food supplies to his troops, and then to kill themselves to avoid burdening the Japanese garrison with too many mouths to feed. Horribly enough, they obeyed. Over 300 Okinawans killed each other with hatchets, sickles, and anything else they could find. When the Americans did manage to rescue some locals, they were sent to Akamatsu's forces under a flag of truce to ask Akamatsu to surrender. Akamatsu had them shot. On one of the outlying Okinawan islands, called Zamami, the local commander, named Umezawa, ordered all the elderly and children on the island to commit suicide, and to do so, no less, in front of a memorial to fallen soldiers, in order to remind them ostensibly of their responsibility to the nation. He then forbade the remaining civilians from picking wild food or from accessing the island's food stores, and shot 30 men who violated that order. These were far from isolated incidents. There are reports from across the island of troops directly or indirectly killing civilians. Soldiers denying civilians refuge and forcing them into areas of open fighting where they were killed by American bombs, civilians being killed to keep them from using up supplies, and even children being executed by soldiers for fear that the children would cry out at an inopportune moment and reveal their position. Not all the killing was done by the army, though. Civilian rates of suicide, driven by fear of capture at the hands of Americans, and a national ethical discourse valuing death more than survival, were exceptionally high. Often, grenades were distributed by the army to assist the suicides. But grenades were not always available. Anthropologist Norma Fields describes the scene. Quote, On Zamami Island, rat poison was the instrument of choice. The have-nots envied the haves, while the latter gulped down as much of the substance as they could. 
It was a misplaced envy, however, for excessive consumption led to vomiting and excruciating discomfort, but not death. For that, active intervention was required, as illustrated by the case of a frenzied mother who held her baby by the feet and pounded it to a pulp against a rock. Families often hanged themselves from single ropes. This worked well enough for those in the middle, but not nearly as effectively for those on the ends. Finally, there were the stones, farm tools, razor blades, and kitchen knives. The implements brought in to sustain life in the natural caves or great family tombs in which the civilians often hid. You may ask why I'm taking the time to describe all of these horrible events in such detail. There are a few reasons. First and largest, to contrast what I've described, which the dead preferred to capture by the Americans, to what happened when the Americans finally won. They brought food, medical supplies, shelter, and even chocolate. The Okinawans had been told they would be massacred by the Allies. That the Americans did not do this was perceived, on Okinawa, as such a fundamental betrayal by the Japanese government that in many ways Okinawa has never really recovered any level of trust in the mainland government. It's also worth noting that there are people in Japan who try to pretend the things I've described did not happen, or that this behavior wasn't condoned by the army. Even the Japanese Ministry of Education has only recently begun to encourage mention of soldiers executing civilians, though mention of voluntary civilian suicide was never discouraged, since suicide, being voluntary, can be read as a heroic refusal to admit defeat. As recently as 2007, the Ministry of Science, Education, and Technology discouraged description of Okinawans being encouraged to commit suicide in favor of the oblique phrasing, quote, Okinawans were given grenades by the army. The controversy was finally resolved this year, in 2013, with the phrasing, quote, Orders from Japanese soldiers led to Okinawans committing group suicide. The Japanese army caused many tragedies in Okinawa, killing local civilians and forcing them to commit mass suicide. Some civilians were also killed by Americans, to be sure, often in combat situations. Japanese troops, in an effort to ambush advancing Americans, would fire from civilian homes or dress in civilian clothes and plead for aid before detonating a hand grenade. As a result, American troops were given orders to fire upon spotting any movement in civilian homes, and would sometimes deny aid to civilians. In the end, the Battle of Okinawa stands as the fundamental issue dividing Okinawa from the mainland. In the eyes of many Okinawans, and to be honest, this is completely true, Okinawa was thrown under the bus to spare the mainland further suffering. That the Battle of Okinawa did not break the American will to fight, nor did it spare the home islands further suffering, seems beside the point. Almost 150,000 civilians perished in some of the most brutal fighting of the Second World War. After the end of the battle came what, in many ways, felt like the final betrayal. After all the propaganda telling them the Americans would horribly mistreat them and that death was the only way out, the new occupiers of Okinawa brought food and medical aid. The feeling that they were lied to and sent to their deaths as part of the army's insane plan to save the homeland created a feeling of mass betrayal in Okinawa, a feeling that still exists to this day. For example, in the 1880s and 1890s, as Japanese nationalism began to be reasserted in the schools, for example by compulsory hanging of the Japanese flag and singing of the national anthem, one of the big areas of resistance against this drive was Okinawa. 
Japanese flags, for example, were often torn down by the natives. After the war, Okinawa was sacrificed yet again for the benefit of the country. It was handed over to the Americans as part of the peace agreement, and was managed by the U.S. for the next 27 years. Okinawa reverted to Japanese control in 1972, but to this day it has the heaviest concentration of U.S. bases in the country. Almost three-quarters of U.S. military facilities in Japan are on Okinawa. This, too, has resulted in some ways in the victimization of the Okinawan people. Though the vast majority of soldiers are good and honorable people, not all of them are. Rapes, thefts, and murder are perpetrated by U.S. service people all over the world in foreign bases, and Okinawa is no exception. For example, in October 2012, two U.S. Navy personnel sexually assaulted and robbed an Okinawan woman in a parking lot. They were convicted on both counts in March 2013. One received ten years in prison, the other nine. There are also fairly consistent issues with vehicular manslaughter, particularly in relation to drunk driving. American personnel, after drinking too much, would lose control of their vehicles and often kill or injure locals. In the most recent case I could find, an Air Force service member lost control of a truck and killed a 19-year-old boy. It's also worth noting that the two cases above were tried in Okinawan courts, which is a very recent development. Until 2012, American servicemen who committed crimes in Okinawa were tried by the U.S. military, and were often given light sentences or simply reassigned. Popular anger on Okinawa finally forced reassessment of this rule, but some Okinawans don't think that's enough. They want U.S. bases gone altogether, citing the above incidents as well as legal claims regarding the land the bases are built on, which was simply seized by the U.S. without any real legal proceedings. There was talk of closing the American bases on Okinawa as recently as 2009, with plans to move the majority to Guam. But then fate intervened. The recent issues between Japan and China over the Senkaku Islands means that the departure of U.S. forces from Okinawa is looking unlikely again. Yet again, Okinawan desires have been subordinated to the desires of the Japanese government. So, what can we take away from Okinawa's history? Why is it worth taking the time to talk about it? First, Okinawa puts paid to the idea of Japan as an ethnically homogenous nation. Okinawan culture, language, and history is very distinct from, quote, regular Japanese, and Okinawa's history is a valuable reminder of how the transition into a modern state has affected the areas around Japan. Beyond that, though, the nature of the relationship generally between ethnic and cultural minorities, and ethnic and cultural majorities, even in a democracy, is worth discussing. Majorities retain a lot of power, minorities tend to get second shrift. One can see this in the relationship between Japanese and Okinawans, between Chinese and Uyghurs, between the Soviets and the old Central Asian Soviet republics. Perhaps this says something about nationalism. The only way a given group can be secure is with its own independent state. Where does that end, though? Would the ensuing national fragmentation really be any better? I'm not so sure I have the answers, but it's something that's worth thinking about. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, 
or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.